the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten. There are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself. For the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 6. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. It is the whisper before the scream... I woke up with those words in my head today, as I have every day during this last week. While I don't know what they mean, objectively it's pretty easy to guess. The storage unit we have, the books and documents I've been granted, so far I've scraped the mere tip of the iceberg. This thought began in the period between dreams and wakefulness ever since last week, when I had begun thinking of the bookstore, whose brand and labeling was on some of the volumes in our storage unit. I've done a little research into that bookstore. I have some information to share. But every time I think about doing so, the phrase, it is the whisper before the scream, echoes through my mind, in a whisper but so persistent that I can't possibly ignore the fact it has meaning. You remember Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Telltale Heart? There's a copy of that in the storage unit. Multiple different versions of multiple Poe collections, in fact. But that's beside the point. The fact is, this whispering reminds me of the beating of that hideous heart. In the story, the sound forced the unnamed narrator to do something, to reveal himself... Here, it feels like the opposite, that the phrase I hear is telling me, not yet, not yet. Bringing up Poe is interesting, though, as for the last week, a black cat has been hanging around the storage unit area. It won't approach me, and it hasn't entered our storage unit, but it's on the grounds every time I go there now, and I'm certain it was never present before. Relevance or coincidence, I don't know. As I've mentioned before, certain documents or tomes draw me to them, like a magnetic pull. Every time I enter the storage unit, I hear dozens of stories crying out to be told, needing to be told. But occasionally I brush past something which causes me to feel the opposite, in a visceral, panicked way. There's a sealed shoebox. There's a book sealed with a flimsy padlock. There's a small collection of handwritten notes held together with a rusty paperclip. A bunch of other things, too. Yet another mystery of this collection that I feel I'm going to be forced to understand one day, if not solve myself. And let's not even speak further of the ten-volume journal of Mary Beth Carter. As I previously mentioned, I was unable to find anything significant on a quick flick-through. But that shelf screams at me. And I'm beginning to hear those screams even when I'm away from the storage unit. I needed some time to clear my head from these new, stranger developments. 
So this week, I simply grabbed the closest document bundle to me, which was calling to me. I no longer believe in chance or free will inside this storage unit, so I'm sure the collection of printouts I settled on is being performed at exactly the right time, as per some grander plan I'm currently not privy to. But this is what I grabbed. It's marked with a label reading Charlie Davenport, a name I recognize from earlier in this bizarre game, and, in fact, an author who's appeared on the podcast multiple times. I know he didn't write these docs. In fact, he has no idea why his name was attached to them. Yet this is another reason I know something extremely strange is going on which is personally targeting me and those around me. What alarms me about these emails is how how recent they are, how real. You'll see. I've chosen to ask Dan Zapula, Mary Murphy, and Mike Delgadio to perform this tale, but I'm sure, like everything else going on, my choice in the matter was simply an illusion. The only title I can give this one is Separation. To A.H. Perkins 91, sent Sunday, 11.58 p.m. I've been awake for about, I don't know, an hour or so, and I don't know if I'll be falling back to sleep tonight. I hope the noise didn't or doesn't wake you guys. I just can't stop coughing. I already feel bad about you having to watch him by yourself all day. Was he in here today? No, I know he wasn't, but I swear I saw him in here, still in his jammies and holding that stuffed lamb my mom got him. Did we unpack that yet? What did he call it? Jesus, this is playing with my head. I guess it's for the best we're just emailing. I cannot string a thought together for the life of me. I don't know if what I have is the bug or not, but whatever it is, it's taken me out right at the knees. My chest feels like it's full of broken glass, and I'm so tired, but Jesus Christ, the dreams. I just woke up from one with the house burning, and I was running through it trying to find somebody. Maybe you or Ethan, but I couldn't find them. It was bigger than it was in real life. A seemingly endless number of rooms for me to search through, and it was all burning. I woke up coughing so hard that I could see black spots. We were right on top of each other when this thing started, but testing positive and staying locked in here, it's really strange waking up here all alone. We've been married over ten years, and I don't think I was even aware of how used to sleeping next to you I've become. How are you doing, honey? Still no symptoms? You're wearing gloves when you come and pick up the plates, right? What about Ethan? God, if something happened to him. If it was my fault. I should have never gone to that store. But we needed two-ply before all the hoarders got to it. I'm looking at the house next door, and it's completely dark. It's not even midnight, and they've totally closed up shop. It doesn't help that I already feel like I'm the only person in the world up here, 
I really appreciate the books, and I know I have the phone. But could we move a TV in here? It's tough to get my brain to focus on the words, and the phone's screen is small. To M.A. Perkins, 86. Sent Monday, 6.26 a.m. I took Ethan for a walk today. Don't worry, we wore our masks and gave everyone that came close a really wide berth. We needed to get out of the house. He's just got so much energy. I love him, but I can only listen to Baby Shark so many times. We got to the golf course before he started to freak out and started to talk about washing his hands. I swear, if he doesn't come away with OCD from this, it'll be a miracle. Funny you mentioned the lamb, because Ethan isn't going anywhere these days without Woolsey. He brought it along with us on our stroll. He's also refusing to take off his Spider-Man costume. I just don't have it in me to argue with him about it. So, there we are, walking out in this heat with our masks on, and our own Peter Parker dragging Woolsey behind us on the ground. God, people were giving us the weirdest looks. There must have been a dozen people walking around the golf course. Almost nobody was wearing masks, or any PPP except for me and him. These people are not taking this seriously enough. Hey, did you try and get up in the middle of the night? Maybe to move the TV from the garage in? I swore I heard the front door open last night. Did you go out back? Honey, please don't get up. It defeats the whole purpose. I know you, and you were probably thinking it was too heavy for me to move on my own. But you are not well, and if you have it, you are putting us all at risk. I'm not mad, okay? I just want us to make it through this together. Sadly, I'm not even getting the chance to feel alone. There's Zoom meetings for me, and virtual circle time with Ethan's class. We get about a dozen deliveries and drop-offs a day. I barely have time to sit. A lot of the neighbors are just sitting out front in lawn chairs, big tubs of wine in their hands. They're holding conversations about where they're going to eat when this is over, who they're going to vote for, all by yelling across the street at each other. Yes, still no symptoms over here on this side of plague land. I'm tired and stressed as hell, but no fever and no coughs. Trust me, I'm checking Ethan and me obsessively. I think he can tell how much Mom is worried, but I can't think about that right now. Just gotta keep us healthy, get you back on your feet, and worry about all his damage once we're on the other side of things. We can afford therapy for the kid, right? All I know is, the second we can get out of the house, I want to go camping, just the three of us. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Let's get away from it all after weeks of isolation. Maybe finally go to Yosemite and sleep out in the great wide open. It'd be nice to lay with my two guys and just get to look up at the stars. To A.H. Perkins 91. Sent Monday, 10.30 p.m. Just read your email right now and I'm looking up at the stars. Lucky thing, too, because it looks like there's a meteor shower or something going on. I'm going to try and catch it on my phone. 
If it's clear enough, I'll send it to you. Good God, I could use a glass of wine right now. But I guess I'll have to stick with the Theraflu. Thanks for that, by the way. Maybe it's a good thing Woolsey is back in the picture. Anything that makes him feel more secure, right? I'm so sorry that you're having to do all of this on your own, babe. I'm just so damn weak and cold. Did you turn the heat off tonight? I may have just been out of it, but I swear I got up to use the guest bathroom and I couldn't get the light switch to turn on. Did the power go out? That's all we need. I was so goddamn cold. When I finally stumbled my way over there and then back, the bedside light was on, so I guess it was just a tripped breaker? Sorry you had to be the one to get up and fix it. I feel so useless just flat on my back like this. Honestly, I'd kill for something to happen outside right now. Remember when we moved in here and those kids were TPing the houses? I'd welcome that kind of nonsense right now. The highlight of my night was when I spotted a coyote at the top of the road, but it might just have been the neighbor's dog. Seriously, there's not a single light anywhere on the block, and the internet is crawling along. Is the TV too heavy? I know you've got a full plate, honey, and it might defeat the purpose, but I can come down and get it. I am losing my mind up here. I miss you guys, Mandy. Maybe if I can manage to stay awake for more than a few minutes, we could FaceTime? I could really do with seeing those chubby cheeks on Ethan. How is he? How are you? To M.A. Perkins 86. Sent Tuesday, 5.22 a.m. You saw a coyote last night. How do I know, you might ask? I got a text at 5 a.m. that we had a package out front. I thought it might be the Tylenol I ordered, and my back was killing me, so I went down. I threw open the door, and there it was, just sitting at the end of the driveway. I could see its breath steaming out of its nose. I grabbed the box and ducked back inside. I think it yelped at me, and I swear it sounded like it was laughing. I called animal control, but they couldn't get anyone out this way. They're getting reports all over town. Coyotes attacking dogs. Turkeys just everywhere on the roads. And I had a Zoom with Natalie, and she thinks she saw an otter on her way to get gas yesterday. Don't the neighbors have a dog? The little bastard barks at me if I go in the backyard. But an actual predator shows up, and Mr. Yap Yap clams up. After I downed a couple of the pills, I decided to bite the bullet and haul the old TV up from the garage for you. But when I got down there, I couldn't find it. I swear I saw a light on under your door last night. And not like a reading light, either. Babe, I swear if you've gone and brought it up there on your own... Please, I just can't. Ethan can't get sick, okay? Power was on when I got up, and none of the breakers had tripped. So whatever happened wasn't at our end. You were probably just cold because you have a fever. What's your temp been like lately? I didn't see anything on the news about a meteor shower or power outages, but it's all pretty much COVID-related stuff right now. Everything else is a B story. 
Remember when we lost Bagel last year? And Ethan started asking what death was? Now he's asking what Corona is. And if it's going to get his friends. Will he ever go back to school? Does it hurt Grandma and Grandpa's? That kind of thing. I don't know if him seeing you... Sorry, babe. Like you are right now is the best thing. Woolsey got dirty and I had to put him in the wash. And he just erupted into floods over that. I had a Zoom conference coming up. So I just had to tell him to go to his room and not worry about it. I know I could have handled it a lot better. I swear, I don't ever remember having this many face-to-face meetings. But now that it's on Zoom, everybody wants on. It's like all my least favorite colleagues are desperate to prove their existence. I logged on for a committee meeting I'd have forgotten about if not for the reminder on my phone calendar. And when I got there, there must have been about a hundred open tiles. Everybody was completely silent, but I don't think anyone was muted. After a good 15 seconds or so, somebody new finally logged in and said, What I miss? Then everybody started talking all at once. It was like they were all just waiting for their cue. I couldn't stop thinking, I'm the only one that's really here. I miss you too, babe. To A.H. Perkins 91. Sent Wednesday, 1.53 a.m. Hey, thank you, by the way. Don't get me wrong, Mandy, I'm grateful, but I nearly tripped over the TV when I got up to pee. Then I almost fell over lifting it up and getting it plugged in. I laid back down for like a second, and I was asleep again before I could even turn it on. Speaking of which, when I woke back up, the power was off again. Did you pay the bill? I know you've got a million things to do in a day. Do you you want me to handle that? As long as I have the internet, I can handle that kind of thing. Hey, Ethan was knocking at my door tonight. I couldn't really understand what he was saying. Something about you and his room and happy birthday? Does that make any sense to you? It broke my heart, but I told him to go back to bed. I emailed you, but you didn't respond. I think he was scared. I know we just got him to sleep in his own bed, and for such a little guy he takes up a lot of space. But how do you feel about him sleeping with you until this is over? Maybe that's a bad idea. Were you coughing last night, or was that Ethan? I dreamed about the house again. Still burning, but this time I was trying to get out, except there weren't any doors. So, I think it's safe to say that my subconscious has just done away with trying to be subtle. To M.A. Perkins 86. Sent Wednesday, 4.02 a.m. Well, it looks like you got your wish. The front of the house was covered in eggs this morning. One of the package guys must have delivered late and not sent me the text. So there were all these groceries just sitting out for God knows how long. Some neighborhood kids must have been walking by and decided it'd be funny to pretend it was Halloween and egg us. Little shits. I guess if toilet paper wasn't so scarce, we might have that to look forward to as well. And yes, the power was off again when I got up, too. And of course the bill was paid, Mark. And it was supposed to be paid at the start of the month. By you. 
After you missed last month, I put it on autopay. The internet, too. I love the kid, but I couldn't imagine looking after Ethan all by myself and trying to work without videos to turn on. And there's no way Ethan was at your door last night. I think it's a huge step backwards, but I already brought him into my bed with me. Good God, does Woolsey stink to high heaven. Your son managed to shove him right up against my face no matter which way I turned. He's convinced Mr. Nash is back and that the nightlight won't keep him away anymore. So he was there when I woke up and I have the sore ribs from his bony little elbows to prove it. You must have been dreaming, honey. I actually know how that feels. It seems all I do with my free time is sleep. I woke up in front of the computer screen in the middle of a Zoom, just as everyone was logging off. I have no idea what the meeting was about, but I haven't gotten any emails, so I can only assume everything's fine. I heard you get up in the night again. Stay in your room, Mark, please. Nobody's sick out here and we have to keep it that way, right? To A.H. Perkins 91. Sent Thursday, 2.04 a.m. The power is out. Again. And somebody moved my flashlight. It had to be either you or Ethan. Did you take it downstairs for batteries or something while I was sleeping? Mandy... I don't want you guys in here. Like you said, it totally defeats the purpose. I can see lights on in the houses across the street, first time in days, so it must be at our end. I'd call the power company myself, except I seem to be awake solely after dark these days. What if Ethan wakes up in the night and couldn't turn on a light? Jesus, if he thinks his boogeyman is back already, could you imagine? He was at my door last night again. He was trying to tell me everything was okay, that you were taking good care of him. But his voice sounded strange. I think he was trying to be brave. He's becoming such a little grown-up. Did you have to come and get him? I thought I heard coughing last night, just before he went to his room. Are you sure you're not getting sick? I was up most of the night. Are we out of Theraflu? When the hell did we get a delivery? When the hell did those kids show up? I didn't see anyone or hear anything, and I'm so bored that I'm looking for anything at all to happen. Are eggs what I'm smelling? There has been a smell wafting in here now and again. And for me to catch it right now, it must be pretty bad. Also, when did it become my responsibility to pay the bills? I had a dream about the house, still burning, still trying to get out. But this time, there were these things watching me. They were looking in the windows with these giant, cold, black eyes. And I just felt like they were willing to watch me burn. To M.A. Perkins 86. Sent Thursday, 3.51 a.m. No, Ethan wasn't in your room, and I didn't take your flashlight. Why the hell would I do that? It's just in there in case the power goes out. Oh, by the way, I called the power company because you just about had me convinced, and there's been no outages here. 
After the last windstorm and the brush fire around Halloween, they've been patting themselves on the back for keeping things up and running. Like it isn't their friggin' job in the first place. This afternoon I heard our neighbors having one of their front lawn socials. So I masked up and was going to ask them if they saw anything last night. But when I stepped out, they all just stopped talking. Every single one of them. They just stared at the house. At me. Really freaked me out. You know, I was going to let this slide. But I'm starting to think you're blaming me for everything. Me, who fixes your food. Me, who's risking her health every day by going to the door and hauling all that crap in. Me, who is still paying the bills by putting up with those dead-eyed stares for my screen. Me, who has been shoving her hands under steaming hot water just in case there was any chance. And if you come out of that room one more goddamn time, I will lock you in. At first, I thought it was because you were sick and isolated. You hear about those stories of prisoners being locked up and losing it. But I think there might be something more going on here. Have you taken your temperature lately? I'm going to check the medicine cabinets in the guest bathroom. I bet you haven't been taking your Tylenol or ibuprofen. To A.H. Perkins 91. Sent Friday, 3.03 a.m. Wait, wait, wait. If there haven't been any outages here, what the hell was going on Wednesday when you said the power was out when you got up? Of course I've been taking the pills because I haven't been getting any Theraflu. I just looked outside and there's nothing on the driveway. That smell is goddamn everywhere now. The house reeks of it. Was Ethan at my door that night? Oh my god, is he even okay? Have you been taking your temperature? I'm getting up. I think you're sick. I knew I heard coughing last night. I only pray that you haven't gotten Ethan sick. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. You stay in bed today, I will get breakfast ready for Ethan, and then I'm thinking maybe we get you to the hospital. I know they don't have a treatment or anything, but they must be able to do something for you. To M.A. Perkins 86. Sent Friday, 3.30 a.m. The hospital? Are you fully insane? The place where the absolute sickest of people are. What are you planning to do with Ethan? If you think for one minute I'm going to let you take my precious child to that disease fest downtown, I won't let you do that. He said you were up, asking him to come into your room, telling him it was time to leave. What were you planning to do, Mark? I will not let you take him outside with them. To A.H. Perkins 91. Sent Saturday, 3.40 a.m. I just looked at the pills, Mandy. I can't believe you thought I wouldn't notice. Really? You've been filling my bottle with your meds? No wonder I couldn't get up. What else have you done to me, to our son? Them! Who is them? Do you know how crazy you sound? I'm calling the cops, and I'm taking my son and getting him the hell out of here. 
Case number 56810. Date April 11, 2020. Reporting Officer Sergeant Edward Thaw. At approximately 6.45 a.m., I arrived at 2951 Cucciati Court. I had previously stopped by this address on two previous occasions, April 2nd, 2020, and April 10th, 2020, to respond to concerns neighbors had about the number of packages piling up outside, but had been unable to make contact with any of the house's occupants. On the way to the front door, I passed six different piles of packages, some stacked five high, and there was a pronounced odor coming from several. These packages appeared to be from subscription food services. I knocked at the front door, but once again received no response from inside. Looking through the front window, I saw what appeared to be two figures, one male, one female, lying at the bottom of the stairs. I tapped loudly on the window and called out for either of the individuals, neither moved, and so after calling for medical assistance and backup, I proceeded to smash in the glass near the front door, unlock the door, and enter the property. Inside, I found Mark Perkins, date of birth, January 1st, 1986, and Amanda Hawks Perkins, date of birth, 6-30-1991, lying at the bottom of the stairs. Despite the obvious positioning of their limbs and the signs of trauma, I checked both for vital signs. Finding none, I... God, I'm sorry, I don't even know how to describe what happened. From what I could tell, Mr. Perkins and Mrs. Perkins had an argument at the top of the stairs. From the looks of it, it seemed like one of them had smashed their way out of the nearby guest room. There's no way to know, but I think one of them was trying to keep the other sequestered in that room. Both of them looked frail, pale. I don't think either one had been outside in weeks. Mrs. Perkins' neck was snapped, most likely by Mr. Perkins. In her right hand, there was a small kitchen knife that was the apparent source of the defensive wounds on Mr. Perkins' forearms. I counted at least half a dozen. He had some bleeding around his ears and what looked to be a basal fracture at the neck or base of the skull. I think they might have tumbled down the stairs while they were fighting, or he killed her and got woozy from blood loss, maybe, and then... Uh, I'm sorry. It's just that this is a small town, and even with everything going on, I just didn't expect to run into something like this on the job. I searched the rest of the house just to be certain. When some of the neighbors had reported a possible domestic disturbance last Thursday, the 2nd of April 2020, they'd all mentioned in one way or another that the Perkins had just moved in, like literally a month or so before the shelter-in-place order had come down. They said they barely had a chance to talk to anyone beforehand, but from what I could gather, they moved up here for work after a house fire in L.A. The neighbors didn't mention anybody else living in the house. But when I bent over Mrs. Perkins' body to check for signs of life, a door upstairs slammed shut. I probably should have waited, but I swept the area. They had two spare rooms up there, just a bunch of boxes in one, presumably from their move. In the other, there was just this stuffed lamb like a kid's toy. As far as I could tell, it was just the two of them. It is the whisper before the screen. It is the 
Let's rekindle our love of Halloween. It's not too many months away already. And besides, at a horror podcast, it's Halloween all the time. But for some, the night can be filled with terrors outside of the usual fun kind. And in this tale, shared with us by author L.P. Hernandez, we discover that those terrors can exist throughout time. Performing this tale are Mick Wingert, Brian Reeder, Aaron Lillis, Nicole Goodnight, Matthew Bradford, Graham Rowett, Atticus Jackson, Jesse Cornett, and Danielle McRae. So remember that the past and the present can be filled with horrors both fantastical and very real, that history exists for us to learn from, and that you might want to avoid a sundown town. As a child, I loved the scent of autumn, crackling fires and cinnamon-sweet brews bubbling on stovetops. I love the snap in the air, the gray canopy of clouds that promised snow but only ever provided rain. In the South, snow is for postcards and movies. Once in a while, after whispering prayers to the skies, a stray flake would land on my cheek. But by the time I found Mama in the house, it was just a tear exploring the depths of a dimple. My love for Autumn ended on October 31st, 1991. I was eight years old. Young enough to know Santa and his elves were in high gear, churning out toys for good girls and boys, of which surely I was one. But I was also old enough to wonder and worry about the logistics of the journey of his ability to eat so many cookies and travel so far. I was old enough to know my family looked different than almost any other, and it was a difference we almost did not survive. It's not picking up anything. Bernie twisted the knob of the car's radio as the speakers fizzed and popped. It was a fourth-generation, heavily modified Ford Thunderbird. My stepfather's retirement gift to himself. A creamy off-white with a convertible top a few shades lighter. Retired was a good way to describe the car in addition to its owner, as it almost never left the garage, even though I found Bernie sitting in it listening to his music. My sister Amber chided him from the back seat. Come on, Bernie. Just keep your eyes on the road, dear. Mama took control of the radio. The windshield wiper struggled to keep up with the rain, and Bernie couldn't find the right balance of heat relative to the temperature outside, so the windows were fogged. We wouldn't be using the convertible for its intended purpose this evening, but that was okay, because it was chilly out and we didn't have far to drive anyway. Bernie's chin hovered just above the steering wheel as he squinted at the road ahead. Our neighborhood was comprised of one to two acre plots of manicured lawns separated by patches of forest. The streets were named for trees or Native American tribes dispatched to Oklahoma during the previous century. Deer were as common as squirrels and they often appeared in the road as if by magic, which inspired my stepfather's attention. Our destination that stormy evening was the trunk or treat event in old downtown Prattville the city's most historic district. 
Mama tried to convince me it was better than trick-or-treating because we didn't have to walk so far. And as the rain pelted my window, I began to believe her. It was strange celebrating Halloween when it wasn't fully dark. I felt silly in my Peter Pan costume, mostly at the green hosiery I had to borrow from my sister. I willed the storm to worsen so the event would be called off before any of my classmates saw me. And God or whoever it was controlled such things heard at least that prayer if he didn't hear any other. There was no separation between the flash of lightning and the bellow of thunder which turned the marrow in my bones into jelly. My sister, brother, and I screamed, and the car swerved into the opposite lane, the tires kicking up gravel. For a moment, we were perpendicular in the road, and I saw the pine tree that was struck had collapsed, breaking apart as if it had been made of sand. The hairs on my arms stood on end, and the car smelled of ozone. My older brother, Robbie, rubbed the top of his head where it had struck the roof. He decided several weeks ago that 14 was too old to celebrate Halloween and so did not wear a costume. But his heart wasn't in it. And I often caught him frowning at my jack-o'-lantern bucket. Amber, two years my senior, was much more interested in the candy aspect of Halloween and so threw her costume together only 20 minutes prior, pairing a pacifier with a novelty big kid's onesie and declaring herself a baby. Bernie wrenched the car back into the right lane, then hit the brakes until a tank of the car skidded to a stop. The stereo returned to life, with a syrupy steel guitar dripping its notes between a woman's haunting, mournful singing. In the space of a few seconds, we seemed to have lost several hours in the day. Above the tops of the trees to the west, the sky was cotton candy pink and there were already constellations pinned to the midnight blue behind. For 20 seconds or so, it was just the woman's voice, the guitar, and our rapid breaths. Is everyone okay? I looked for the fallen tree behind us, but it was too dark to see. There were headlights in the distance, though, and Bernie gently pressed the gas pedal. The engine and its seldom-accessed power rumbling like a far-off stampede of bison. The neighborhood felt different, darker. Mama noticed the absence of porch lights. Must have knocked the power out. But the storm was over. It was gone. The only evidence of rain at that moment was plastered to the windows of our car. There were no clouds. There was no thunder. There was only the bubblegum-colored sky ahead and the starry night behind. What just happened? Lightning. Just lightning. But Bernie's eyes were scrutinizing the now-empty sky. The song ended, and a faster number took its place. Perhaps not realizing he was doing so. My stepfather lowered the volume until the music was inaudible. But where's the storm now? I... I don't... I don't know, Robbie. Mama freed one of Bernie's hands and held it, 
the ivory of her skin sinking into the chocolate of his. Her other hand rested on the swell of her belly where my then unnamed little sister was marinating. We were a blended family. My older siblings, white like my mother, representatives of an alcoholic father they had not seen in nearly a decade. I was the prize of my mother's subsequent marriage to my father, who was of Mexican descent and the first generation of the family to speak English. The disillusion of their marriage was more complicated, but he was at least still welcomed in the house and on rare occasions he visited me. The Air Force brought Bernie and my mother together, rewarding his nearly 30 years of service with a final duty station in Montgomery, Alabama. Mama was also in the Air Force, mid-career at the time, and Alabama was just one of many stops along the way. We moved 20 minutes away to Prattville for its schools and relative safety. Though he would not turn out to be the man of her dreams, he was the man and the stability she needed then, and we were happy. Not every minute of the day, but more often than not. We were also a curiosity in 1991. A black man, white woman, two white kids, and me with my raven hair and olive skin. Out there in the suburbs, the curiosity had a sharp edge to it. Our mailbox had a habit of dislodging itself from the post, always at night. Within days of our arrival in the neighborhood, old glory banners disappeared and the Confederate battle flag took their place. Bernie collected himself with a long, forced breath as we crawled toward the stop sign by Highway 82. He flexed his fingers as if deciding what to do next. Headlights reflected in his eyes as he adjusted the rearview mirror, then drove across the highway, aiming for the shortcut that would lead us to downtown. The car shuddered as it dipped into a grass median. The spinning tires fought for purchase. Shit. There was no grass median there. Or at least there hadn't been in the four months we called the area home. It was supposed to be asphalt, allowing northbound travelers to turn left into our neighborhood and permitting us to access the northbound lanes. The car's undercarriage screeched as it recovered from its brief voyage into the earthen culvert, and we headed north at a slow speed. Where was the... I don't know. Bernie removed his cowboy hat and wiped sweat from his brow with the back of his hand. During his travels with the Air Force, he lived in Texas on three different occasions and adapted a Western style that often added to the confusion outsiders experienced upon encountering our family for the first time. The shortcut was up ahead on the right, less than a quarter mile, not enough distance to build significant speed. In the back seat, we volleyed a look of utter befuddlement amongst ourselves, which persisted when the shortcut did not reveal itself. Did we miss it? We hadn't. Though the light I saw was low, I saw only trees and kudzu vines. There was no shortcut. We drove in silence. I think each of us was trying to understand what happened. How the stormy early evening metamorphosed into a cloudless early night. 
how a strip of asphalt we had accessed 100 times by then became a grass median. And the right turn, including the signs to indicate its presence, similarly vanished. Perhaps out of a sense of helplessness, Bernie controlled the one thing he could. The radio. That was Patsy Cline. And don't you just get the sense that's going to be a classic? My, what a voice on that young woman from Virginia. He cut the volume and cleared his throat. <clears> throat> the steering wheel squeaking under his fingers as he squeezed it. There was a lone streetlight up ahead and a sign for an upcoming turn. We'll just see where this takes us. Are you sure? I don't know what else to do. All thoughts of candy, of trunk or treating, of my classmates seeing me in my sister's pantyhose were gone by then. Puzzle pieces were there, but my eight-year-old brain could not assemble them. Bernie made the turn, which put us on the familiar road to old downtown, but about a mile further north than normal. A scattering of brake lights was ahead of us, and a hazy, phosphorescent glow from the city. It was then I detected the scent I so often associated with the season. The fires burning. We followed the brake lights toward downtown. The sign welcoming visitors was brightly illuminated. I was accustomed to a small sign with white lettering over a green background. There were at least six ways into Prattville, and the lone fancy sign overlooked Highway 31, the road that connects the city to Montgomery. This sign was new, but looked old-fashioned, with block letters carved in wood, arching over a relief rendering of the Prattville Creek. There was an additional smaller sign off to the right, but angled toward the road. Whites only after dark? Bernie glanced in the rear view and saw a pair of headlights gaining ground with more behind. Shit. Before the bridge, there should have been a small trailer park, a place he could turn the car around. Bernie's eyes darted that direction, but there were only blue-gray trees losing color to the night. Mama nodded toward downtown. Just drive through. He nodded and licked his lips, like debating throwing the car in reverse right there in the middle of the road. Once we were on the bridge, however, there was no turning back. There was a commotion up ahead, a person standing in the road revealed only by his moon-yellow flashlight. The cars ahead of us slowed and threw on their blinkers, indicating that they were turning right toward Main Street, our original destination. Bernie grasped the window crank, but hesitated when he recognized the man holding the flashlight was a police officer. Great traffic that way, through traffic in Northington. Bernie followed the cars, heading for the brightly lit downtown, but I'm not sure he was conscious of the decision. In the back seat, the candy I secretly ate an hour before contorted in my belly as if the sour worms were actual worms. What's happening? 
remember twisted her fingers into knots and stared at her knees. I don't know, but I'm scared. It's like we went and... Robbie did not finish the thought. The downtown lights were ablaze, from store windows to street lamps, and floodlights positioned on sidewalks to either side of Main Street. And they revealed a downtown I did not recognize. The cars were similar to Bernie's Thunderbird, but with sharper angles and more chrome. Some reminded me of the black-and-white gangster movies he sometimes watched. The studio where I practiced karate had transformed into a hardware store. Mama's salon, which was right next to it, was a bustling diner. The store windows were painted with Halloween scenes, and kids darted up and down the sidewalk as ghosts, clowns, and versions of Superman who had not yet discovered spandex. There were adults in lawn chairs, Young men in jeans and white shirts with the sleeves rolled, and young women in flared skirts with those black and white shoes I never learned the name of. Music occupied the unclaimed air in the car, but it was disorganized, like several musicians playing different songs at the same time. And the tinge of burning was stronger, enough so that I could taste it in the back of my throat. The cars in front of ours were also convertibles, tops down with riders sitting on the trunks, some in costumes and some not. Little girls, miniature versions of their teenage sisters, waved at the car in front of us, where a young woman with a sparkling dress, tiara, and silk sash sat. Her hand moved as if it were underwater as she returned the wave, and the girls collapsed into bashful giggles. It felt like Halloween. Despite the confusion, the implications of the sign I did not understand at the time, I smiled and sank into the wonder of the moment. Each of us jolted at the tap on the window. Bernie and Mama shared a look before he rolled it down. From my place in the back seat, I saw only the badge and the name tag. Gillespie. Evening, folks. What organization you with? I'm sorry. Bernie was a Vietnam War vet, and though he never saw combat, he was privy to its effects in an intimate way. He prepared the bodies for return to American soil. He saw the worst of it. The missing limbs, eviscerations, skin burnt into black pixels. He knew the smell of decay. He knew the absolute destruction of war. He was not a harsh man, but he was stoic. Prior to that moment, I had never heard fear in his voice. The man at the window retreated a step. Say, what year is this? She's a beauty. Bernie's mouth opened, but no words tumbled out. He looked to Mama, who held both hands over her belly then, and pressed her back into the car door as if hoping she could melt through it and appear on the other side. She shrugged, and I could not see her face, but I can guess it mirrored the terror he felt. It's, uh, it's the latest. Bernie's voice was barely audible over the crash of cymbals and the blaring of brass instruments. How's that? The latest model. I just picked her up. 
Bernie kept his eyes trained on the convertible in front of us. You're a lucky man, then. I'd love to take one of these down to the Gulf, you know. Say, what organization are you with again? We gotta announce the names during the parade. The officer plucked a small notebook from his pocket. Bernie fidgeted his fingers and shook his head slightly. I'm, uh, uh, with the Air Force. Then I saw the man's face just to the right of Bernie's cowboy hat. His eyes were hidden in the shadows. From the back seat, they appeared as two black ovals. He gripped the car door, his long, thin fingers breaching the sanctity of our vehicle. His mouth was a razor slice, the hollows of his cheeks pulsing as he clenched his teeth. My sister's hand found mine, and she squeezed so hard I had to clench my own teeth to keep from screaming. Bernie looked straight ahead. There were kids in the street, only a foot or so between us and the next car. The pickup truck behind kissed our bumper. There was nowhere for him to go. Bernie stiffened, his hat grazing the convertible top. A black cowboy. He used a different word, though. There was another aspect to this story I did not notice at the time, and it only made sense 20 or so minutes later. The officer flickered, as if viewed through whirring fan blades. There was so much stimulation, music, and shouting children, idling engines that I didn't think about it in the moment. It just happened. The shadows around the officer's mouth parted as he smiled, revealing teeth speckled with chewing tobacco. He reached his hand inside the car and Bernie shrunk away from it. Officer Gillespie brought his face to within a few inches of my stepfather's. That's some get-up you got. Looks damn real. Bernie's cowboy hat quivered as he nodded. The man squeezed Bernie's shoulder with his reed-like fingers and clapped him on the back. Better wipe off that makeup before you get too far from Main Street. Hate for someone to get the wrong idea about you. Won't make it through the night in Prattville looking like that. Bernie nodded. His knuckles looked like overripe plums threatening to burst through the skin as he squeezed the steering wheel. The officer stood and scribbled something on the pad. Make sure you put the top down before the parade starts. They're gonna love you. What's your family's name again? Bernie cleared his throat and adjusted himself in the seat. Uh, Smith. We're the Smith family. We were not. At the time, there were two surnames in our family, and neither was Smith. Smith family. Air Force. Got it. The officer rode on his notepad. Then the officer pivoted his body toward the vehicle behind us. A slow, shaky breath passed between Bernie's lips as the officer began to walk away. thing. Make sure the mayor sees you. He's gonna get a kick out of it. And put that cop down. 
the sound of the seatbelt unbuckling, my mother put a hand on Bernie's shoulder. You're not gonna run. If I don't, it just gives him a reason to come back. Time and circumstances. At a different time or under different circumstances, it would not have been an act of bravery to open that car door, to step out into the night. But at that time, and under those circumstances, it was the bravest act I had ever witnessed. He moved quickly, putting the convertible's top down as instructed, and made it back to his seat just as the car in front of us shifted into drive and eased forward. The discordant music coalesced into the sound of a marching band. Car and truck horns blared and headlights flashed. There was a boy dressed as a scarecrow outside my window. He was bent at the waist with both fingers jammed in his ears to block out the noise. As with the officer, he appeared to flicker in and out of existence for a couple of seconds. Like one of those little animated flipbooks. A tall figure dressed as a ghost grabbed him by the elbow and jerked him so hard the straw hat fell onto the sidewalk. Oh my God. Jesus. It was not a man in a ghost costume. It was a different sort of costume entirely more dangerous and terrifying than any specter could have been. The robe was so white it nearly glowed, and the hood with its pointed tip made him appear taller than he was. Welcome to the Prattville Halloween Parade. We've got a great lineup for you folks. But first, I'd like to highlight our sponsors, beginning with the Sons of Confederate Veterans Local Chapter. The boy squatted to retrieve his hat and was jerked roughly back to his feet. He extended an arm, grasping for the hat, which caught a gust of wind and rolled like a tumbleweed down the sidewalk. Okay, let's kick this thing off with our very own Bratville Lions marching band. We began to move. Mama put two fingers to her lips and closed her eyes. Amber curled up into a ball as my brother stared at his folded arms. The marching band music was only slightly improved in its organized form. It's okay. They think it's a costume. Okay. We'll just drive through town and then keep going. We can go back... trailed off, not believing his own lie. Can we go to the base? Bernie made eye contact with me in the rearview mirror. Yes, Paul, that's a good idea. We can go to the base. Let's give the band one more round of applause, folks. Kids, get your bags ready. Up next is Don Moore with Don Moore 4. Folks, if you're looking for a Ford, you don't need to go to Montgomery to get a deal. Just come down and see your old friend Don. The road curved to the left. On the right was the fountain that would, in 1991, be the centerpiece of many family photo shoots. Beyond the fountain was the dam 
and the cotton gin I only knew to be in a state of near collapse. Right then, it was brightly lit, silhouettes of night shift workers standing at the windows watching the parade pass. There was a street vendor selling funnel cakes, a line of children waiting for their chance to bob for apples. There was a ring toss game and a bing bag game, but the longest line was for a dunk tank. Still dry person hovering above the water was an unflattering caricature of a black man with oversized tomato red lips. I think Bernie was too focused on the road ahead to notice. As we moved into the bunker lights of Main Street, though, he began to attract attention, mostly from the adults in their lawn chairs. Fingers were pointed, cameras flashed. And next we have Miss Altaga County. You may know her as Laverne Rockwell, and yes, her daddy is the owner of Rockwell Vacuums. Officer Gillespie was in the crowd to the left, shaking hands and patting shoulders as he had done with Bernie moments ago. And I am told that is a brand new Thunderbird just off the train from Michigan. Wow, that thing looks fast. Let's welcome the Smith family representing the Air Force. And look at that costume. You are a brave man, Mr. Smith. Or is it... Colonel Smith, thanks for joining us and for serving our country. We had no candy to throw, and so we waved. Crowds began to form to both sides. A few more camera flashes. Bernie nodded and doffed his hat as children dashed to and from his door trying to get a better look. It felt like a nightmare. The fading marching band music the ill-fitting costumes, most of which looked homemade, and the joy on every face. Mostly that. Each face not hidden by a mask was smiling. Officer Gillespie pointed to our vehicle. We were in the brightest part of Main Street by then, with floodlights crisscrossing in the sky above us. But for a moment, he appeared to be conversing with a shadow one that shimmered with reflected light. The shadow peeled free from the conversation, and the pit that formed in my stomach found a new, deeper center. It was a shadow, in a sense. A shadow of the past. But right then, it was walking toward Bernie as the car trickled down Main Street. The man's voice was muffled by his black satin hood. Bernie was pretending to be interested in the traffic. Yes. Boy, Gil was right. That's some get up. <laughs> Bernie nodded. The man leaned in close so that I could see his eyes. When he spoke, it might have been intended just for Bernie, but I heard it clearly. I'll tell you what, come on down to the next meeting at the lodge. We got a couple of your folks with us, Air Force, I mean. 
things are getting pretty thick over in Montgomery. And it's a great time to be a knight. Tell him Mayor Will sent you. <laughs> His white gloved hand appeared, intended for Bernie to shake. And though my stepfather did shake it, he kept looking forward. The man in the black robes did not release his hold, but held it for a moment. He rubbed his thumb across the back of Bernie's hand, and then inspected his glove. Oh my. He slowly retreated from the vehicle, walking backwards, eyes once again hidden by his hood. Shit, he knows. What? Mama sat up in her seat. A kid dressed as a cowboy ran up to the car and brandished his plastic gun. Shit. You're dead. The boy then ran back to the sidewalk. The man in black robes stood beside Officer Gillespie, offering his unblemished glove for inspection. The officer looked from the glove to our car and then his hand found the butt of his service pistol. He knows it's not makeup. He knows. Let's hear it for Principal Waldo and the rest of the Prattville High School staff. Almost no applause followed. To our left, there was now a handful of men clustered around Officer Gillespie and Mayor Will. The glove had been removed at some point and was passed around the group. Just go! Bernie shook his head. Kids in the road. We'll haunt the horn! Amber sobbed beside me, and I felt like doing the same. The men, maybe half a dozen of them, began to walk in our direction. I saw at least one pistol aimed at the street. They spread out, moving aside the kids still picking up candy tossed out by parade vehicles. They're coming! Up ahead, Main Street shifted into a residential area, and the parade traffic began to turn right into the parking lot of the First Baptist Church. Beyond the church, the street was much darker. At the rate we were traveling, we only needed about another minute to reach it. Just go! Bernie checked his mirrors and shook his head again. Still kids in the street... They're coming! There were ten or more now, in plain clothes, costumes, and uniforms. The crowd seemed to sense a shift in the air, from celebration to predation. Men who likely had no idea what was happening joined the group. The eyes of the whole town were on us. As before, everything blipped out of existence, this time for a couple seconds. Maybe I saw Prattville as it was in 1991. Or maybe I just wished it was so. But then I was back. Many things happened in the next several seconds. I do not remember the proper order of them. The crowd in the road had thinned out, as most of the children were in the middle of Main Street, where the highest concentration of candy was. But there was a small group on our left... They stood over a brutalized black effigy, 
which was likely hung from the now frayed rope dangling from a street lamp. I picked through the cotton stuffing, searching for hidden candy. There was no sign designating this a game. It was just there. The gunshot was like the crack of a whip. The driver's side mirror snapped, but it did not sever. The next thing I heard was the screech of spinning tires and the roar of the Thunderbird's engine. There were screams and shouts, the sound of grating metal as we clipped the car in front of us. Ms. Augusta County lost her tiara and rolled off the back of the car. I do not remember further gunshots, however. Our proximity to scattering children likely saved us. I do remember the engine. All those unrestrained bison suddenly released. I remember the wind on my face and Bernie's cowboy hat sailing into the night air. There were lights and sounds, all of it compressed into a single feeling of desperation. Much of my knowledge from that night was subsequently colored by what I learned as an adult of the era and the South in particular. At eight years old, I only knew there were men with guns chasing us. There was a fire burning in the Baptist Church parking lot to the right. So big and bright, I felt the heat of it as we passed. Beyond that, there were a few porch lights and then the refuge of darkness. Engines came to life behind us, the cavalry assembling to correct the indignity and embarrassment of our family's presence in their city. The Bernie's Thunderbird was hungry for asphalt. We're getting away. I met Mama's eyes as she peered over her headrest. I couldn't see the speedometer, but by the sound of the Thunderbird's engine, it didn't have much more to give. More flickering. This time the entire block, and for several seconds. We rumbled through the neighborhood, the lights and sounds of downtown fading. There wasn't a car or truck in Prattville that would catch Bernie's Thunderbird that night. The world went dark on either side of us. No porch lights. Highway 31, which ran all the way to the base, was less than a mile ahead. Everything flickered again. Night peeling back a few hours. The empty fields to the right and left replaced with dollar stores and gas stations. It was the way the town looked in 1991. We made it. Bernie shifted the car down as we returned to the main street of the past. Flashing red lights blocked our access to Highway 31 ahead, and the cars behind were suddenly much closer. Bernie swung the Thunderbird to the right, and we were on a dirt road, seatbelts cutting into our bellies as we bounced in the back seat. Another flicker between the past and present. The dirt turned to asphalt and back to dirt again. Headlights behind us. There and gone again. A locked gate appeared before us. The Thunderbird fishtailed as Bernie slammed the brakes. I waited for the sound of car doors or possibly gunfire. But neither came. I blinked at the relative brightness and saw we were in a familiar place. Parking lot of the YMCA, which was thankfully empty. No one spoke as we waited for an abrupt return trip through time. But that was the end of it.
After a few minutes in which we assessed our physical health, knowing we were mentally deflated, we drove home. We took the long way, bypassing Main Street. The tree that was struck by lightning in our neighborhood was moved aside by then. There were a few trick-or-treaters out, but it wasn't a popular place for it considering the distance between houses. At home, we recounted the night's events, which already seemed less real. There was no internet then, and so we could only guess what happened. The term time slip had not entered my lexicon, but it did later on in life. I don't know if the term fits, but there was a tension that seemed to build the further we got from the place where the lightning struck. Sleep came quickly. My body was exhausted from the waves of adrenaline. I woke sometime during the night and saw a band of light beneath my door. I left my bed to investigate. What are you doing, Bernie? He was out of breath and had a baseball bat in his hands. He bent down to muss my hair. Nothing, just... Uh, getting some energy out. The next morning, as I took the trash out, I saw a familiar mailbox in the bin. One I passed when walking our dogs through the neighborhood. It was dented. Some of the black and gold stickers with the letters of the owner's last name missing. But the G was hanging on. I knew the name. I knew the man. He sat on his porch most mornings, cigarette in one hand and a cup of tobacco juice in the other. I learned not to wave at him since he never waved back, though he was friendly with other kids. We had no reason to drive past his house as there was nothing beyond it other than the cul-de-sac at the end of the street. After that night, though, Bernie made a habit of it, always wearing his cowboy hat in the Thunderbird with the top down, just like he asked for all those years ago. The first time we passed, maybe it was just out of surprise or confusion, he waved. I feel like I owe you all an apology. I've forgotten what this next tale is about. I know, I know this is lax of me, and I've tried. I've sat down and read the story multiple times, and I know it's a fantastic story and a powerful one, but the second I finish it, the plot itself, the, the narrator in particular, has vanished from my mind. All I know is that in this tale, shared with us by author S.H. Cooper, we meet a man who... No, no, I'm sorry, it's, it's gone again. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford and Erica Sanderson. So perhaps by listening to a performance of this man's story, you will recall it. 
Maybe you can be the ones to keep his memory alive, or at least just spare him a thought every now and then. After all, he's only asking that you think of me. My name is Dennis Majors. I'm 37 years old. I'm unemployed and don't have any real friends or family. No one to miss me. That's why I need you. I've been going somewhere, but also nowhere. See, I wake up and I'm in my apartment, but it's not my apartment. None of this makes sense, I know, but it's hard to explain. Guess the best way I can describe it is that it feels off. Like when you're looking at one of those pictures that seems fine at first, but you realize there's stuff wrong with it the longer you stare. I notice the photos first. I keep a few in my living room. I'm in one or two of them, or I was. See, when I'm in this other apartment that looks just like mine, I'm, I'm not in those photos. I don't have a reflection either. I barely remember my own name. It's like I don't exist. It's been happening more and more frequently lately. Let me back up. Maybe that'll help you understand, maybe not. See, I lost my job about six months ago. After I was laid off from the plant, I stopped going out. I don't like going out. I don't like people. Without a job, there was no point. I can just order pretty much whatever I need online. I was getting unemployment, and I have all my bills set to auto-pay, so I don't have to worry about it. No one called to check in on me. No one dropped by. Basically, I'd managed to avoid just about all contact with the outside world. I thought it was fine. I've never minded being alone. Sometimes, most of the times, it's preferable. Others cause a lot of grief. After so long and so much of it, I was happy to be by myself. Well, happy. It was as close to the word as I could get, I think. I was still alive, at any rate. And then I started waking up in that other place. The one that's mine, but not. Where I don't have any pictures or reflection. The TV and radio are static. Sometimes I think I can hear something. It's not quite a voice, but it's close to one. I don't know what it's trying to say. The first time I realized something was off, I went to a few doors on my floor and knocked. No answer. The entire building felt silent oppressive and muted, like a giant blanket had been dropped over it. Usually I could hear cars and stuff from the other street below, but not then. I didn't have the guts to go outside that time, or the next, or the next. I stayed in my apartment, trying to fall back asleep so I could wake up in my real apartment. I'd never know which version I'd find myself in. How do you tell people something like that without sounding like a lunatic? On welfare... A recluse thinks his apartment suddenly changes while he sleeps. It's the perfect combo to point to absolute nutcase. Maybe I am, but I don't feel crazy. Does anyone? So I endured it. While it was sporadic to start, the longer I stayed alone in the real world, I don't know how else to differentiate between them, the more frequent it became. I finally found the courage to leave my floor, but still couldn't find anyone. So I went outside. It was overcast out there. It always is. The quiet doesn't change. Cities aren't meant to be empty. 
I still recognized the storefronts and the familiar cars parked in the same spots they always used. But the doors don't open, and there are no people. At least, not many of them. I've only found a handful when I'm there, and only a couple of them qualify as people. This place does something to them. To us. There's a lady who is always standing on the corner of Park and 7th. I avoid her if I can. She's got this mummified look. No meat to her, just leathery skin and bone. Almost all of her hair has fallen out. She moans a lot, like she's hurting. I've never heard her speak. She just stands there, clinging to this road sign, just moaning. And there's a man on 36th. He's sitting in an alley. He looks worse off than the park lady. He can barely hold his head up. Because he seemed weaker and unable to chase me on his stick-thin legs, I tried to talk to him. He reached for me, groaning in this awful, dusty sort of way. His eyes were sunk so far into his skull, I thought they'd just roll inward and disappear into black holes. That was all he could do. Reach and moan and stare with dry, bloodshot eyes. I found another woman on the stoop of a coffee shop. She's still young, a bit younger than me, but has a weathered look to her, like she's slowly drying out. The first stages of becoming like the park lady and the alley man. She didn't seem surprised to see me when I walked up to her, just sad. I think we traded names, but I can't remember what she said hers was. I wish I could. Maybe it'd help her. I asked her what was going on. You're alone. I told her I was. And I wanted to get out. You're being forgotten. Just like the rest of us. I asked her how long she'd been there. What year is it? She stared ahead when she spoke, unfocused. And I told her, it's 2019. She shook her head. It was slow and painful. She said it was March 2017. That it would always be March 2017 for her. I said I didn't understand. The forgotten have to go somewhere. When the world doesn't know you're in it, you get pushed out. You come here. And the longer you're here, the less you are there. Until you're not there at all. You don't get to go back until you're remembered. I left her sitting there, hugging herself. How do you respond to that? I was scared. I didn't want to stay in that place. I went back to my apartment and tried to force myself to sleep so I could wake up in the real world again. I just laid there, thinking about what she said. We were forgotten, and this is where we wait to be found. Eventually, I managed to drift off, and when I woke, there was sound and sunlight and life. I'd come back. For now. There's not much to research about this forgotten place, at least that I could find. What I did find was lists and news reports of people who slip through the cracks and vanish, some for years at a time, without anyone questioning it or looking for them. The most famous case is probably Joyce Vincent's. She was an English woman who simply disappeared for almost three years before her skeletal remains were found in her apartment. There are a lot like her, though. Christina Copeman, James Gales... Albertina Rambla, all of them left for weeks, months, or even longer before being discovered. People ask how something like that can happen. I think I know. They were like me, alone, no one to think of them, 
no one to remember them. And so the world pushed them out into that stifled, silent place where all you can do is wait. And they stayed there until one day someone remembered them. But by then, they'd been away too long, and all that came back was a withered corpse. I don't want that to be me. I don't want to keep slipping further away until I'm stuck, rotting, waiting for death. I want to be remembered. My name is Dennis Majors. Please, think of me. Are you aware of the size of some of the ranches out there? <laughs> they are huge. Numerous large ranches across the U.S. And did you know that in Australia, there's one ranch, one single ranch, which is bigger than the entirety of Texas? Mm, that's wild. So it's understandable that if someone owned a ranch, even for years, they might one day stumble across an entirely new area they've never even seen before. And in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, we meet a ranch owner who ends up straying very, very far from his familiar paths. Performing this tale is Atticus Jackson. So let's take a walk through the Arizona desert, under a sky with no clouds, where the heat is hot and the ground is dry, but the air is full of sound. Sound indicating warning, Sound indicating danger. Sound indicating that you're home, home on deranged. I've lived in Arizona my whole life. I was born on my family's cattle ranch and I intend to die here one day. I know every nook and cranny of this property. I'd explored every inch of it by the time I turned eight. There ain't a single prairie dog hole I don't know about, or a cactus I haven't been pricked by. For the past three years, since the last of my family died off and I never married, it's just been me alone here with my cattle and horses. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Like I said, I've been here my entire life. I know everything about this place. But today, I'm going to tell you about the time I found a path out back I'd never seen before. And have never seen since. It was a sweltering hot day at the very start of monsoon season. The storms and rainfall hadn't quite set in yet, but I could tell they'd be coming any day now. Humidity hung thick in the air, tiring me out quicker than normal. That day, I was herding the cattle back into the corral because they'd been acting real strange, and I had a hunch maybe a pair of coyotes had migrated south to test the waters. I had no intention of delivering them an easy meal. Me and No Name, my fastest horse, were making quick work of it, when one of my bigger bulls, Nico, broke away from the herd and went running toward the mountains. 
Shit. It would have been easier to handle the situation if I'd had another rancher with me. But since I was alone, I stayed with the herd and resigned myself to go after old Nico once the rest were safe in their enclosure. Half an hour later, I shut the gate to my cattle's enclosure and pulled on No Name's reins. He let out a protesting huff. I pet his flank firmly. I would have jumped on one of my other horses, but I knew No Name was the only one fast enough to catch up to Nico with the head start I'd given that damn stubborn bull. Come on, boy. Stay with me just a little longer. I'll give you the day off tomorrow. I knew he couldn't understand a word I said, but he was a smart horse. And if nothing else, he understood the tone of my voice. He chuffed again, but then strode towards the mountain range. I whistled his namesake song as we trudged through the desert towards the copper mountains Nico was probably grazing on. On the mountain, old Nico was kind enough to leave us a trail of broken twigs and trampled bushes to follow. But after roaming around for about an hour without finding him, I worried it was time to give up and head back. As much as I hated leaving old Nico out there overnight with the coyotes, it was getting near sundown. Now I was just going to have to take my chances. For all his grit and hard-headedness, Nico was a bit of a princess. I knew the second it started raining, he'd come running back home with his tail between his legs. I just hoped it would rain before the coyotes got to him. Oh, there, buddy. Come on. Let's head back. No name and I turned around. But instead of seeing the cactus and pile of white rocks I expected to see next to the path leading down the mountain, I found thorny bushes and clay-colored soil. I wiped my sweaty brow, examining the road curiously. Let me tell you, there's nothing weirder than seeing something that shouldn't be there. It was a sudden shock, like walking into a patio door you thought was open. I climbed off No Name and walked over to the bushes to examine them. As I knelt down and checked, I could see the roots firmly nested under an undisturbed patch of soil. The bushes had been there for a while. Suddenly, No Name hollered something silly. Before I even had time to look, I heard the clumps of his hooves as he dashed past me and down the path. I felt the rush of air as he ran by. Irritated, I tossed my hat on the ground and cursed at him to come back. But he was spooked and he wasn't slowing down. So there I was, alone on the mountain with one bull missing, no ride, and all my equipment, shotgun included, still strapped to no-name saddle. It was going to be a long evening. I could only hope no-name would settle down somewhere on the mountain and take me the rest of the way home. Forgetting all about how wrong the path was, I put my cowboy hat back on and followed after my horse. The damned humidity had me drenched in sweat before I'd even trekked half a mile down. The sun was setting, but it was still searing hot. I was exhausted, starving, and most dangerously, thirsty. I hadn't taken a drink from my canteen since I locked the cattle in. And since I tied the canteen to my saddle, I was shit out of luck. My mouth was pasty and dry with a few grains of sand from the dirt no-name had kicked into the air as he had passed me. It was only when I stopped to catch my breath that I realized nothing looked familiar. 
Every rock formation was different. Every cactus was either too big or too small or even too crooked. And every path curved in places it shouldn't curve. Hell, even as I looked out on the horizon at what should have been my property, I found myself feeling something like vertigo from how different everything was. That's when I heard a rustling behind me, followed by a hungry huff of what must have been a coyote. I didn't want to face the vulture on my heels. I took off down the path, hoping I'd be able to regain my bearings once off the mountain. Problem was, the more I ran, the more things seemed to warp. It wasn't just the landmarks that got me confused and turned around. It was my blurring vision making everything buckle and melt like one of them dolly paintings. I could feel my cheeks burning red, but I was starting to feel cold from the wind and the sweat-soaked rags I'd been wearing all day. I knew my body couldn't handle it much longer, but every time I stopped to catch my breath, I'd hear snarling and footsteps behind me again. I remember how desperate I felt as I reached the bottom of the mountain and found myself still completely lost. I couldn't see my home, didn't have a clue which way to go, and even if I did, I didn't have the energy to walk anymore. With only a short 45 minutes of sunlight left, I decided to stay where I was for the night. I hoped a bit of rest and maybe a drink of morning dew would be enough to bring me back to my senses. I gathered up some twigs and rocks and built a fire for myself. That might seem strange to you, considering how overheated I was, but as scorching hot as the desert is in the day, it can be just as cold at night. And besides, I needed something to keep the coyotes from nipping on my heels. By the time I finished building myself a rudimentary bed out of brush and gathering a few edible roots, I'd lost the last of the sunlight. My clothes were drying by the fire, and I laughed as I imagined a hiker stumbling on me butt-naked in the wilderness. He'd probably think I was a nutter. As I lay there gnawing on the roots like a dog with a bone, I could hear the coyotes prowling outside the light of my fire. They were growling and snarling, the sound of their hungry contemplation echoing in the valley. I'd shoo them away by hollering at them and throwing stones, but they'd always come back within minutes. I could see dozens of eyes watching me through the darkness. What in teenage mutant tarnation? I thought to myself as I peered into the darkness. I'd rarely ever seen more than two together at a time. Around here, coyotes don't usually hunt in packs. I was gonna have to stay awake all night and tend to this fire. My only defense... My head had been dipping for a while when I heard a sickening sound outside my camp. One of the coyotes was screaming and whining something silly. Accompanying the whimpers were short huffs and loud roars of another animal. Coyotes don't usually cannibalize one another. They've been known to do it when they're desperate enough for a meal. I thought that's all it was. Until I heard something trotting around just out of view followed by another coyote screaming from the other end of my camp. The pack scampered off in all directions. Anything that can make a coyote run, aside from the sound of my shotgun, is something I should run from too. 
staying by the fire meant potentially becoming a prime meal for whatever was attacking the coyotes. But those flames were also the only protection I had, both from the elements and from the attacker. There was a huff on my left. How had it gotten there so fast? Another coyote screamed, and this time I got to see what happened to it. Its body came tumbling towards me and stopped just inches from my feet. It had been completely eviscerated. Its hind leg was twitching wildly, but its eyes were lightless and dead. I looked in the direction the coyote had been thrown and saw the silhouette of something large and deranged looking back at me. It walked on four long, stick-like legs that buckled in ways that legs just shouldn't buckle. Its body was at least as big as a bull's, if not bigger, and the silhouette of it seemed to shift at every flicker of the fire. Its head was long and bony, with two fiery eyes watching me like a lion stalking its prey, and it had two horns coming straight out of what looked like matted hair. The creature's breaths came at regular intervals, a mix of a huff and the same snarly growl I'd heard on the mountain. That's when I realized it wasn't a coyote chasing me earlier. It was this malevolent entity, whatever it was. I started running. I didn't even think it. My body just did it on its own. What else was I supposed to do? If I was going to die, at least I'd die on my own two feet, trying to survive. I could hear it on my heels, at times to my right, and at others to my left. It was so fast, but it wasn't outrunning me. It gave me the distinct impression it was toying with me, like a cat playing with his food. The creature followed with me like this for what felt like hours and I was running on fumes and nearly delirious from dehydration. It never let up, but it also never drew closer. Every time I looked over my shoulder, I could see its shadow in the moonlight, trampling through the bushes and kicking up dirt. My feet were sore, my head was spinning, my mouth was as dry as cotton, but I kept running and running and running until I realized something, the way it was chasing me. It didn't just feel like a game. I knew those patterns. I recognized the technique. I was being herded like cattle. The sad thing was, even if I knew what was happening, there was no breaking away from it. Because every time I tried changing directions, I'd hear it on my flank, already blocking the way. If there had even been a lick of water left in my body, I think I would have lost it all to tears at that point. But just as I lost hope, just as the adrenaline wore off and I started slowing down, I saw a light ahead of me. It was my ranch. I was almost there. Just a bit farther. Just one last push, and I'd be safe. I could barely walk, let alone run. But somehow, with the creature threatening to rip me to shreds on my tail, I managed to jog. I made it to the gate, 
pushed it open in one fell swing and stumbled inside, listening for the click of it as it closed behind me. I didn't think of anything except the basin of water my cattle drank from. I plunged my face into it and drank greedily, completely ignoring the taste and thoughts of bacteria that could be swimming in it. My stalker let out a huff, reminding me of its presence. I turned around slowly, water dripping from my face, and looked at my pursuer, now bathing in the lights around the enclosure. The lights I used to help scare away predators. The creature rose on its hind legs, towering over the fence as its hooved front legs batted at the air in invisible circles. The creature was more terrifying than I could ever have imagined. A horse with sunken eyelids, rotten flesh, and a frayed mane. Its legs were all bone with a few ligaments holding them together. It had big buck teeth permanently visible on its nearly skinless face. It looked wild. It looked powerful. It looked familiar. No name? The creature's front legs connected with the ground, sending out a light plume of dust in every direction. It huffed, and then walked away into the night. I don't remember going home after that, but I woke up on the couch covered in filth and still butt naked. As I looked out toward the stalls, I saw No Name standing in his pen with the door wide open. I suppose you could say it was all in my head. You could say I imagined No Name as a monster in the night. You could say I was delirious from heat stroke, sure. But... If it was all just in my head, then how would you explain the eviscerated coyote carcasses I found strewn about my property the next morning? In our final tale, we find ourselves in an office. An average, normal office. But we're not focusing on an average, normal employee here. No, we're focusing on that guy. You know the one. The loud, brash comedian who has to be the center of attention. The prankster. The guy who uses humor as a defense mechanism for his own insecurities. And in this tale, shared with us by author Nicholas Johnson, we find that our boy Jack is very much going to need all the defense mechanisms he can muster. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Sarah Thomas, Kyle Akers, Jeff Clement, and Danielle McRae. So let's spend some time with Jack. He might not be the easiest guy to like, he might be a little grating, but you can't help but feel bad for him with what he's about to face. His entire world might be collapsing, but will he be the last to fall? Mm. 
Good morning, honey. Babe? Jack? Come on! This isn't funny! Jack? Honey? Jack? Boo! <laughs> what? I thought it was funny. Jesus, Jack! You think everything's funny. You'd probably laugh if an elderly woman tripped over her own cane. <laughs> yeah. What? Well, well, I can't help being the only one around here with a decent sense of humor. Somebody's got to be the life of the party, right, hon? Party? Jack, you say that like all of life is supposed to be one big party. Isn't it? Sounds fun to me. No, Jack. Some of us like a little seriousness every now and then, mixed in with all the practical jokes. A little romance, maybe? Or a chance to relax in bed before work on a Monday morning. Why are you up already anyways? Oh, didn't I tell you? Sorry, I have to go to work early to meet a deadline. Deadline? What deadline? Well, uh, not really a deadline, I guess. I just gotta finish doing the numbers on a recent transaction. Get the paper down to Abby, well, because she likes to, you know, I can't keep her waiting and- You've been slacking again, haven't you? Me? Never! Jesus, Jack. If you keep falling behind in your work, you're gonna get fired. I'm not gonna get fired. It's just hard work. What would you have me do? Your job, Jack. But Mary, it's so boring. Let's see you crunch numbers all day. Hell, if I have to do this for the rest of my life, I swear to God, one day I'm going to crack open a window and they're going to have to clean me off the sidewalk with a snow shovel. What? It's not funny. Not even the slightest bit funny? No. Not even a teeny bit? Not even a chuckle? <laughs> no. Not even a chuckle. Mm. I know you can't stay mad at me for too long. After all, you fell in love with me because of my humor. You know, when you think about it, you really brought this all down on yourself. Oh, I did now, did I? Yeah. No getting rid of me now, though. <laughs> <sighs> I'm a lucky man. What would I do without you? I don't know. You wouldn't last long, though. Anyways, Mr. Lucky, when are you thinking of heading off? Uh, I should probably start heading out now. Why? Are you trying to get rid of me? Always. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, I guess I'll be going to work where I'll die from boredom. Tell my wife I love her. I'll make sure she gets the memo. I love you, too. Try not to be too miserable. Not possible. Business intelligence analyst and clerk in charge of blah, 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 boring... Look at you, you're already bored out of your freaking melon, aren't you? See, how do you think I feel? <laughs> Not great is the answer. Though I doubt I'll get much sympathy on that front. Heck, you're probably stuck in a dead-end job too, aren't you? Working a nine-to-five and just getting by? And for what? Just to come home, brood around for a couple hours, go to bed, rinse and repeat? I guess I should set aside the existential dread for now and just get along with the story. It all started out as a normal day. 
and then ended a completely normal and uneventful day. The end. Ha! <laughs> That'd be some story, right? <laughs> Sorry. Like I said, boring old usual day. I got ready, said goodbye to my beautiful wife, Mary, and left. Oh, and like every morning, I wave hello to Mrs. Bianchi and her hellspawn, Oliver. Hmm. I'm not sure what I did to merit being on either one of their bad sides. Probably a bad impression I made with the old bat. Or maybe she's just a crotchety old woman. Who knows? Who cares? I typically see her on my way back from their walk and try to be friendly, but today I must have caught them on their way out. Good morning, Mrs. Bianchi. Uh. Good morning, Oliver. Burn in hell, Oliver. Burn in hell. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Once I'm done being the figure of ridicule for a walking corpse and her small rodent, I make my way down five stories, usually taking the elevator. I get to my car, get in my car. Oh, you can probably fill in the gaps. Let's just skip to the fun part. Morning. Odd seeing you here this early. When'd you get here? Got here a few minutes ago while you were on break. Figured I'd come in early and get caught up on a few things. Wait, you're saying you came here to work? You? Work? Yeah, hardy har har. You're hilarious. Maybe I just believe there's a little more to life than being miserable all the time. Like what? I don't know. Just more. What the actual hell, Jack? <laughs> what? Don't want me while you're sitting over there with your shit-eating grin. How the hell did you even do this? I was gone for like ten minutes. Whatever it is you think I did, good sir, you clearly have me mistaken for someone who would dare partake in such tomfoolery. I would never. Yeah, right. My bad. Obviously, someone else froze my coffee into a brick. <laughs> you sure it didn't just come that way? Yeah, Jack. I made it this way. Look, I'm just saying sometimes things go wrong. One minute you're trying to make a regularized coffee, the next... Hysterical. <laughs> Look, I'm not even mad, Jack. I just need to know, how the hell did you do this? Nah, Mr. Funny will keep his secrets to himself, thank you very much. And Mr. Humdrum over there can lick his ice cube in peace, because I gotta work. Mr. Humdrum? I'm Mr. Humdrum? Do you remember me in college? Oh God, don't bring up the band again. I can't. If I have to hear about you and your brother playing out of your mother's garage with that one guy, uh, what was it? Henry? Yeah, that was his name, right? Henry on guitar? Henry? Yeah. Henry with the baggy hair. It always smelled like lighter fluid for whatever reason. Come on, you remember Henry. You can't be that old and forgetful yet, Alex. Hell, you're only a year older than me, man. Jack, there was no second guitarist. I mean, I knew a Harry, but... He wasn't in my band. No, not Harry. Henry. He... <sighs> oh, I see. You're getting back at me for the little coffee incident. Make old Jackie boy here think he's going insane. Good one. Aha! <clears throat> All right, uh, maybe I was confused. You'd think by now, with how much you go on and on about it, I'd be an expert on that old band of yours. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fragile. If I asked you to sum up the human mind in one single word, you may say amazing, resilient, complex, confusing, powerful. But there's one word that we should all be able to agree on. Fragile. Because the human mind is all these things. 
powerful enough to do complex calculations, resilient enough to deal with years of trauma, and amazing because you need more than just one word to describe it. But above all these other things, it is fragile. One small moment is enough to sow a seed of doubt, and like a crack on a windshield, it'll just keep getting bigger and bigger <laughs> until you either fix the damage or watch as it shatters. And maybe it's easy when it's just one crack. But what do you do when your world starts to shatter around you? Howdy, stranger. What brings you around these parts? Breakfast burrito? Likely story there, Josiah. Likely story. How are things in HR? They're, uh, things, I guess. No, please, stop. Don't spare me all of this excitement. I don't know if my weak heart can handle it. Come on, Josiah, why are you always a few words short of a sentence, huh? You know, quite honestly, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if you invited me over to your place just to skin me and turn me into a lampshade. Ha 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 ha! Ah, finally a laugh. Good. So you aren't a serial killer after all. Phew, I was getting nervous. Oh, hey, speaking of a cheap laugh, ready for the joke of the day? <laughs> Do I ever have a choice? Nah, not really. It's a tradition at this point. What do you call a box full of kittens on the freeway? What? A speed bump! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you're a horrible person. I'm horrible? Hey, words hurt. I'm only catering towards my audience. You're the one who turns people into lampshades. It's not my fault I have to go dark to get a laugh out of you. Hey, you don't happen to know about Alex's band from college, do you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, the heavy metal chipmunks, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't happen to remember who was in his band at all. Uh, well, it was just him, his brother, and his college girlfriend, I thought. Why? And the name Henry doesn't ring any bells now, does it? Mm, nothing comes to mind. Why? <laughs> no offense, Josiah, but you can't lie worth a damn. It's written all over your face. You're in on it, aren't you? Was that burrito your 30 pieces of silver? Judas, you bastard! No, this is my burrito. I... Jack, are you okay? What's going on? <laughs> Please, don't bother, Josiah. I'll be back once I've confronted the ringleader of this little circus. Your crony told me everything, so you might as well come clean. <laughs> crony? <laughs> Who the hell are you, a noir novel? Also, who's my crony? Josiah pulled your little Who's Henry act, but he couldn't quite pull off an Oscar-worthy performance. So I got the truth out of him. So the joke's over. What joke? Fine. You want to keep going? I need to get this report down to Abby. Is that fine, or do you not remember her either? Jack. Aha! Say it! Who's Abby? You know you wanna. Just say it. Who is Abby? Jack, you... You need to calm down. You're making a scene. Oh, I am calm. And I'm gonna calmly walk down to Abby and hand in this paper. Do you have anything to say about that? I... I... I don't know who Abby is, Jack. I knew it! Dear God, Alex, you're just so predictable. Jack, wait. Jack, wait! Wait!
I laughed to myself, mocking him as I swaggered down the hall to Abby's desk. In retrospect, I probably should have listened to him. You remember what I said about cracks? Yeah, well, you see, I was walking along, not really paying attention. I had this dumb smile on my face, as I suppose I probably always did. See, I was getting ready to turn the joke back on Alex, have the last laugh. I was going to take the paper to Abby, give it to her, and walk back with a certain arrogant skip in my step. But as I reached her desk, I looked up from the paper and, losing a grip on the flimsy thing, let it fall to the ground. My smile faded. Abby was gone. Maybe, maybe she's sick, I thought to myself. Yeah, she took the day off. But that's oddly convenient, isn't it? No, she had to be a part of it. But then that's just one big, crazy conspiracy, and for what? A frozen cup of coffee? No, this took planning. It would have had to have been more than just the coffee. They were planning this, right? Alex, Josiah, and now Abby are all conspirators in one big joke. It was crazy, I admit. But the alternative? Well, let's just say that this was a more rational answer. And that's what we like to do, isn't it? We like to rationalize things. We need to rationalize because our world of chaos is, well, chaotic. So we chase our own tales, look for explanations. First, we try to find clues. And that's exactly what I did. I knew that if I was going to get the truth, it was going to be something I had to squeeze out of Josiah. Alex was too firm and unwavering in this whole charade, so there was no use going to him. I marched down to HR, ready to confront Josiah, but as I got there... He wasn't there. I knew he frequented a lot of places around the office, so I checked all the usual spots, the water cooler, the snack machines, and everywhere else you'd find that quiet little man. But I couldn't find him. Where is he? Where is who? Every now and then, you almost have me with this whole prank thing. But then you go and do something far too cliche. I've been searching around for him all over the office. I've checked his desk. I've checked everywhere. And now, here you are in the break room, the last place I look for him. Almost like you're waiting for me. So go ahead. Have your little moment. Jack, I'm... I'm worried about you. People have been talking about you, asking why you've been running around the office all day, and I don't know what to tell them. Oh, don't give me that. You know exactly what to tell them. Jack, are you losing your goddamn... Jack... What? What kind of joke is this? This is another one of your practical jokes, right? What's what's the point of it? You tell me! Jack, maybe maybe you need to take the rest of the day off. I I can cover for you. I'll tell people you uh, started to run a fever or something that you got a little loopy. You know what? Fine. Why not? I'm mostly caught up anyways. And hell, if I'm lucky, when I come back tomorrow, maybe you'll be gone too. What are you doing here so early? Jack? Uh, yeah. Just thought I'd come home early since I went in early. I was getting a little overworked and it didn't help matters that my colleagues decided that they needed some payback. Payback? What do you mean? Oh, it's just some practical joke. Nothing to worry about. Well, if it's any consolation, you probably had it coming. 
Oddly enough, no, that's not very consoling. It's just... I... Sweetie, are you okay? Was it really that bad? No, it's fine. Just tired, you know. And... And maybe I'm starting to worry that they're not joking. What do you mean by that? Whatever it is, a whoopee cushion in a seat or something like that, I'm sure it's all in good fun. What did they do, anyway? Oh, it's nothing. Just... You know Abby from work, right? Uh, Abby. Is she new? Yeah. Uh, yes, she's... She's a new hire. Sorry, thought I had mentioned her in passing before. What about her? What about who? About Abby. Jack, are you okay? I'm fine. Jack, you're burning up. And you're so sweaty. Are you sure you're fine? Maybe you need a rest. Maybe... Maybe you're right. I probably caught some bug from Josiah. Have I uh, mentioned him? No. Is he new too? Um, he... Yeah, he, uh, he started this week. I think I'm gonna go lie down now. Alright. Do you need anything, babe? Uh, yeah. Can you remind me to apologize to Alex tomorrow? I kinda raised my voice at him today. Yeah, of course, sweetheart. But... Who is Alex? It's red, buddy. I said it's red! It's red! It's goddamn red! And there isn't a damn thing I can do about it! I was starting to lose it. That day, before I got in my car, before I'd even left my apartment building, I noticed something was wrong. Leaving, I stepped out the front door and noticed that Mrs. Bianchi and her disgusting little hellhound were nowhere in sight. I walked up and down the hall, but I never saw her. She never missed a day. Rain or shine, that old bat would walk her dog. So why was she gone? I, I didn't want to face the truth, so I went back and banged on her door. I know you're there, you old hag! I shouted. I know you're in on it! But she didn't answer. Why would she? she was gone. Or maybe she never existed. After all, what was going on? Where were these people going? And was it just my paranoia, or were there less cars on the road today than ever before? Would I eventually disappear? This couldn't have been a dream. No, it was too real, and it lasted too long. Maybe, maybe I had gotten into a wreck one day. Yeah, maybe this was all just a coma, and now the lights are fading out. Whatever it was, I didn't really think I had too much of a choice in the matter. I just had to stick it out until things got better. But it didn't get better. Hello? Where is everybody? Hello? Is anybody here? Come on, guys. This isn't funny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Please. I want to wake up now. Whatever this is, a, a nightmare? Am I in hell? What do you want from me? Where did they go? The desks, the, the, they're all still here, so where did they go? Please, God, I don't want to go. I don't want to be alone. First Abby, then Josiah and Alex. No, Mary. Oh, God. Mary. 
Mary, sweetheart, please don't leave me! Abby, Josiah, Alex, I could live without them. Mary, I had lost her now, too, and here I am, now, without her. See, this is the end of my story, because, because it won't be too long now until I fade away, too. But I don't want to go. I can't. I can't. But what do I have left without my... Without my Mary! No. I need to fix this. I need to find a way out. If I'm dreaming, I need to wake up. I need... Mary always used to wake up in the middle of the night. She'd shake the bed, having woken up from a dream. She'd always mumble, I'm falling, Jack, before rolling over and going back to sleep. <laughs> I just want to see your face again. I just want to wake up. I don't know, though. I worry this was too much. That's odd. Jack left the door open. He must be really freaked out. But I'm sure Jack will get a laugh out of the whole thing once I explain it all. How did you pull this all off? I was talking to Mrs. Pianke today because she was complaining about Jack banging on her door. And she asked if it had anything to do with that young man who showed up, asking her to stay home in order to pull a joke on Jack. No offense, Mary, but your husband isn't a very popular man. The old lady was more than willing when I told her that it would all be at Jack's expense. And of course, everyone in the office has at one time or another been the victim of one of Jack's practical jokes. That's why it was so easy to convince Harrison to leave Jack out when it came time for him to email everybody about not having to work today. Wow. Is my husband really that hated? Nah, he's... he's loved in a vindictive way. Let me go get him. He's not in here. I think he left the window open. What? I... I can't hear you over that car alarm. I said... Ah! Oh God, no! Jack, baby, please! What? What 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 happened? What? What what is it? Oh, oh god. No. No. No, no, no. No, he could still be alive. It's only It's only five stories. He 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 It was all supposed to be a joke. It was just a joke.
as we place the letters back in their envelopes, it's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.